This is a show about individual experience and personal identity. There may be times when folks use identifying words or phrases that don't feel right to you. That's part of what we're exploring here. Please listen with an open heart, and as always, I welcome your polite, engaged feedback, and I encourage you to continue the conversation in your own life and with your own community. Welcome to Query. Hey, Queeros, Cammie here. Well, I've got a show at Dynasty Typewriter on, that's in Los Angeles, it's a theater, on December 14th. You should come to that, cameronesposito.com slash tour for tickets, or you could pre-order my book at saveyourselfbook.com. Wow, wow. And today on the show, ooh, Kit Williamson. I really loved talking to this person. They are the an actor, creator of the television show Eastsiders that you can watch on Netflix. And anyway, you know, please enjoy the show. I've been feeling wrong, but I'm still holding on, darling, I know, I know, I know it's careless. Will you introduce yourself? I always have guests introduce themselves. I know, because I listen to your podcast. Yes, I know. You, yes, you said, <laughs> but yes. Please. Hi, I'm Kit Williamson. I'm an actor, writer, internet person, Mississippi expatriate, and queer propagandist. Ooh. <laughs> um, we were talking when you sat down and you put on your headphones, you, you took your um, earring out. Can you tell me the moment that, can you tell me again so that the listeners can hear the moment that you experienced? Yes, it was very Mad Men. It was very Joan. Christina Hendricks takes out the one earring every time she has to take a phone call. And this is like a, a cultural touchstone of something you always see in like old period pieces and movies and things like that from back in the day when we had these bigger phones that we would put up against our ears and these bigger earrings that everybody had to wear. And I just got my ear pierced, well, re-pierced six months ago because I had my ears pierced in college, but it did not go well. So... <laughs> <laughs> they closed up uh, during a play that I was doing. So I had to take them out too soon after piercing them to be in a Moliere play. So, because apparently didn't have their ears pierced back in old French times. Sure. Yeah. So it uh, closed up and was like a very like sad day for me when, when I realized I could no longer signify my homosexuality everywhere I went. <laughs> and this one, and specifically dangly earring that feels very... George Michael yeah. is really happening right now, I think, for a lot of queer folks. Why did you want to do the one? Like, what, is it, what does it feel like to you to wear that? Well, for at least the time being, I think it is a signifier that you are gay or queer or insert the blank. I actually was in the, uh, my friend Bria and I were, uh, she came with me to get my ear pierced and I was literally like Googling just to make sure what the gay ear was. What the gay It's like, I do not want people walking around looking at me thinking I'm straight. Yes. I you would know, be that's so insulted. So, it's so funny because I, I remember, like this was a thing, you know, um, back when like I would have been a kid and this sort of was first happening, like an 80s era but it was the other way, right? Like nobody wanted to accidentally, I mean, at least in terms of the kids that I grew up around, like there wasn't realized queerness in my community. So nobody wanted to accidentally pierce the gay ear. I love the idea yeah. that you're making sure that you don't accidentally pierce <laughs> the straight ear. I just need to do one tiny thing. Hey, Matt, will you close that door for me? Thank you so much. There's just humans walking back and forth. Um, but anyway, yes. Tell me more about this gay year and why why is it a feel important to you to signify who you are right now? Well, at least in this current point in my life, I'm not shying away at all from uh, wearing my identity on my sleeve. I wear my identity on my sleeve as an artist, as a writer. Um, I accept the limitations that that might be placed on me in this industry, and I've decided to push through it by owning who I am completely. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, I... Like, seeing how you showed up today, I, like, you know, you have, like, bleached out hair, which I have a little bit of bleached out hair still going on, and I feel like that's also a thing that's happening right now in queerness, and I look at you, and it's like, number one, you look awesome, number two, you look, like, of the moment, um, but you also look queer as hell, and so I think, you know, if, if I'm imagining you auditioning for something like a Moliere play or, like, Mad Men, do you change any of this before walking in the room? 
we're kind of in a new era of my experience going through the world and through the industry as an actor. I mean, I was on Mad Men for two years, and I certainly didn't look like this. Right. Uh, I had like a comb over haircut and uh, wasn't allowed to cut my hair and was like very much like, you know, kind of owned by the production for two years, which was an incredible experience. But um, and I got my start doing theater in New York. I was a little Broadway baby when I was um, uh, 21 years old. I was on a Broadway show and like falsely thought that that meant I could make a living in theater and quickly realized that you make less than in your unemployment doing off-Broadway, even at a really good house. Uh, so that's that's why I moved to L.A. and kind of like went down this rabbit hole of I'm going to be a professional actor. Maybe I'll play Speed Racer. I don't know. <laughs> wait, I want to talk to you. Wait, I want, the, when you're 21, what is the job that you got at 21? It's funny that we're uh, doing this on a podcast because it was a play by Eric Bogosian called Talk Radio. Oh, awesome. And what, how, what was your role? I'm not familiar with that, with that play. So what was your role in like how, how yeah, much of the show were you? It really centers on in? this uh, radio shock jock uh, in the 80s, Barry Champlain, who was played by Eric Bogosian in the original production, played by Leah Shriver in the uh, revival that I was in. And I played Spike, the technician, <laughs> technician. Hi, Matt. <laughs> who kind of sat with a backwards baseball cap and a mullet and sort of like manned the controls as everything went haywire throughout the play. So I had a small speaking role towards the end, but I was on stage the entire play, which was a trip as a 21-year-old. Oh, my God. That's also so much work to be – I just recently did a series of shows where the show is set up so that it's like a – a large lineup. Well, not a large lineup, but like seven or six people. And usually at this point, I, if I'm performing on a show out of town, it's like me and then an opener. It's not, I'm not usually doing shows with a large lineup. And also for this particular show, you have to sit on stage during the entire performance. So like some of it, my portion was like 15 minutes. Um, and then I'm sitting up there for like two hours. And it is so much work to make sure that your face is not fucked up. <laughs> just, <laughs> just not make like sure you're making those pretty faces. Not because like, I mean, I'm like enjoying what's happening in front of me, but also like just as a person to be watched like that yeah. is it's very um I mean, I guess it gave me like a lot of compassion for anybody who decides to go into reality TV just because you're like being caught all the time, you know? I mean, obviously it's like set up, but I just mean you're not, it's not like, and action, go, you know, like it's just happening around you. But for you sitting on stage, I can't even imagine what that was like at 21. I've weirdly done it a lot. Or in my past life as a theater actor, I did it a lot. I was in uh, the play Marat Saad twice, which is just one of my favorite plays ever. It's uh, the persecution and assassination of Jean-Paul Marat is performed by the inmates of the asylum, Sherrington, under the direction of the Marquis de Sade. Yes, I feel like I... How fucked up is that play? It's so fucked up. It's a play within a play about all these inmates at this asylum right after the French Revolution, putting on a play directed and written by the Marquis de Sade about the assassination of Jean-Paul Marat, and everything goes haywire and sort of mirrors the uh, explosion of the French Revolution as the inmates rise up against the um, horrible people running the mental institution who are, you know, doing a hydrotherapy and like drowning them, basically waterboarding them every time they have any sort of outburst of emotion. Wow. Is there also sex stuff happening so on stage? Sex. I would it's, just yeah, imagine. Marquita Sad. Yeah. Um did you participate in any of that? Did you have was that part of the, the role first that you time played? in high school? So weird that my high school did this. That play. is, I cannot believe the sentence that you just said. Continue. It was very <laughs> controversial. What? Well, I went to a very like uh, well, I went to Interlochen Arts Academy in Michigan for high school. That was my escape hatch that I like pulled. And, you know, parachute flew out of the car, and I got, landed in Michigan to get away from Mississippi. And you, so you went from Mississippi to Michigan, and to get to that school. Was there like an application process? Yeah, application, audition. I got rejected the first time because I wrote my own monologues, which I didn't understand was going to be a bellwether for what I would do professionally. Got it. Um, but that's that's absolutely kind of uh, what I've found a career doing now is creating my own work. That's also so funny that they didn't like that. But like, of course, a 
you got to follow instructions to be able to get into a school. I get it. Uh, But there was a guest director who came in and did this play, and it stirred up a lot of controversy. Because, I mean, one of the main – there's all this talk of sodomy, obviously. There's one big song, uh, What's the Point of a Revolution Without General Copulation? And they did a whole sex pantomime with all the inmates. But I didn't get to participate in any of the fun of that production because I played Colmier, the, like – uh, director of the insane asylum it was very stuffy and had tails and gloves and such uh, but when I did it off 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 Broadway I got to play uh, Jacques Rue who is a priest in a straitjacket oh sure yeah and did you do sex stuff during that time? No I got to, I mostly yelled oh. I, I mean I was playing a schizophrenic and he wasn't really like there for the reasons that the sexy people were there. I'm asking specifically because to me that is something that feels really scary is doing anything that's um, more like your body is revealed or where you're doing something sexual in a live performance. This season of the show of Eastsiders, the show that I I write, direct, and act in on Netflix, um, I get naked. Fully? Yeah, I mean, no, no dick. I, I don't believe that that's ever really necessary. And I think especially in a sexual context, if you're seeing flaccid penises, you're just like pulling back the curtain and revealing that nobody's actually having sex. Right. Like it, that's the – that apart from the fact that like I do believe there should be parody and nudity. <laughs> like we should have gender parody. If you're going to show a fully nude woman, you should probably show a fully nude man if you're truly showing nudity for the reasons you're claiming you're showing nudity. Right. One. Uh, but if you're showing nudity in like a sexual context and it's two dudes and they're not erect, then you're kind of just like revealing that it's not real. I'm going to ask you the dumbest question. Can you show an erect penis on Netflix? <laughs> Probably not. I feel like you can't. I would But guess maybe I'm no. wrong. I don't know. I mean, I was so I don't paranoid. even know where Netflix falls in the like – I have no idea what the rest- the content restrictions are there. Yeah. Besides, obviously, like what the network is creating. But I just mean, what I mean, is the oversight like? I, I don't know. I've been so paranoid about like being viewed as exploitative in the show uh, because we started on YouTube back in 2012, and at that time, what was a web series really? You know, so to be in at we were short form. We weren't half hour at that point. We were putting it out for free on YouTube, and I didn't want anybody to confuse it for something that was supposed to titillate. You know, when you say what what was a web series, what what was a web series? Like, why did you decide to do that? I wanted to play gay, mm-hmm. and I produced the show, self financed the first two episodes as kind of a birthday present to myself. When I was 26 and in grad school and frustrated because getting getting back to what we were talking about earlier, like I had this little career as an actor, but I didn't really feel like I was getting to be my authentic self that much. I was just kind of guy with glasses, lower status character that gets yelled at by series regular, like not really doing what. I had fallen in love with on stage, which was inhabiting really big characters, inhabiting characters that were very different from myself. I wasn't really called upon to do that. I was called upon to kind of access the smallest part of myself when I got to Los Angeles. Yeah. Were you being called in to read for gay roles, like roles where the person was gay? Almost never. And now – Exclusively, and if you are, I guess, I guess, and and isn't that a thing? Like, if, that is funny. Yeah, that is. Isn't funny. that cute? Isn't it really cute? Yeah, How I had a whole career, and now I don't. Yeah. Well, I'm curious about. I'm curious about. You know, I know what it's like on my end of things. Um, very rarely. A lot of times, if so, the things that the the. I'm not a trained actor. You are a trained actor. For me, I. You know, I'm a comic first and all of this other stuff is stuff that I work very hard for, but I, I didn't begin my career in comedy thinking this was ever possible, especially because I didn't think there would ever be a call for anybody that looked like me to be on TV. Like, I just was literally like, I don't think so. I mean, as soon as Ellen was like, I'm Ellen, they just basically pulled her and were like, you can talk to people, but you can't play anything. Yeah. Um, and anyway, when I... When I have been cast in things, it's usually been like, this is a this is a thing that can be gay. Like if I go in and read for something that is gay, somebody else gets that part, and it's often a straight person. Mm. Um, that's been my experience. Um, I'm not saying that. What I, I have no idea what that's like for a dude. I don't. It's been a really weird sort of like turn in my career because I 
almost exclusively played straight characters. I created this opportunity for myself to play gay and be in like a sandbox with a character that I really could identify with in that way. And since that became more successful and sort of became my online identity, um, and I became, I, I, you know, identified with it, you know, like people identify me as gay because of it imminently. It just, I, I think it's an industry with uh, very little imagination and even people who can, who would consider themselves allies just sort of compartmentalize you and think, oh, he's a gay actor. Yeah. So, you know, I now get called in exclusively for gay roles and I don't really think I'm actually the kind of homosexual that they're looking for. Well, that's what I was, that was the next question I was going to ask is if you get called in for gay roles, like and this is really broad strokes, but like what what does that look like? What is the role that somebody's, like the stereotypical yeah. overarching thing that you're getting, what does it look like? I think people go one of two directions, right? They either go um, still sassy gay best friend, which I think there is a wonderful place for. I, I do not knock those kinds of roles. That kind of representation is needed, uh, especially I think a lot of times people go the opposite direction now where they're saying like, well, they're Gayness is absolutely, their queerness is absolutely not a part of them. Yeah. And we need to cast a absolutely, you know, uh, masculine presenting gay. He's not, he's not gay in any other way except that he's gay. You know, like that kind of thing, you know. <laughs> yeah, like totally. That duality, there's, where's the middle? You know, where are people who are some somewhere in the spectrum of that? I mean, essentially you're talking about Will and Jack, you know, yeah. from Will and Grace. Like that sounds like those characters you know, I mean, obviously, it's not like Eric McCormick is, like, so flexed out or anything, but the central sort of tenant of that character is that a woman could be his best friend. Because his queerness is, like, so um, secondary in his experience that it's essentially the experience of a straight woman. Like, that's, yeah. like, they're, you know, they that's kind of a big part of the... That show and a show that matters and is funny and amazing, but also if we never get past that, that's interesting too. Because I don't know. I mean, who are your best friends in real life? Are they straight women? Uh, you know, yes. Are they? Yeah. Um. Uh. My my best friend is a young adult novelist in Michigan. Who? Oh yeah. My best friend since boarding school. Her name's Brittany Cavallaro. Her books are amazing. The Charlotte Holmes mysteries. Um. It's a feminist. Retelling of Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> I'm, a, I, yes. It's a teenage female anti-hero. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> That's awesome. And sexual assault survivor, which is like another layer that the book kind of like wow. pulls into that I, I think is really sophisticated and smart and so well done. So that is your, that is still your best friend. Yeah. How long have you guys known each other? 16 years. Said, yeah. Wow. 17. Wow. I have one of those friends. I have a friend that I have been friends with since I was, since we were both 10. Um, and that actually means we've been friends for 28 years. Amazing. Yeah. Um, and we also went to grade school, high school, and college together, which there's nobody else in my life that that's true for. This is the one person that if I talk to her about any person that's ever been in my life, she knows who I'm talking about. It's like, it's really amazing, actually. That's so rare to have like, like all three of Right? Those, it's yeah. not even a thing. Even like my family or anybody that I've ever dated, it's like they don't know all of the stuff. So yeah, I feel really grateful to have that person in my life. Her name is Laura. Hello, Laura. Um, but yeah, how do you keep in touch with somebody who lives somewhere else? Oh, we talk on the phone all the time. Uh, and I now go back. She now teaches at our old arts boarding school in our Lockett Arts Academy. Oh my God. She does uh, the creative writing faculty. I actually ended up graduating from the creative writing faculty in part because of my friendship with her. I sort of was not fully accepted by the theater department. This is like a trend in my, my life is that I, I feel rejected as an actor. So I go in and I become a, a writer person and then I get opportunities as an actor while I'm doing that. And it's very uh, strange sort of back and forth. Like when I was getting my MFA in playwriting at UCLA, I got cast on Mad Men very randomly. That's not so surprising to me what you're talking about. I mean, that's a microcosm of, I think, a lot of what queer people experience, which is if you're trying to get the job, that can sometimes be more difficult than starting the company. I'm not saying starting a company is easy, but I'm saying that, that um, you know, we do face a lot of discrimination. And so it does sometimes ring true that the easiest way to get the to, – to put yourself in the game is to – you know, 
create the thing. Well, that's something I've always actually really admired about you is that I feel like uh, you're an entrepreneur in addition to all of the things that you do, all of the hats that you wear. And I was actually first uh, kind of stumbled across your podcast because I was listening to your Jill Soloway podcast. Oh, yeah. And talking about like, how do you choose to define yourself? And she, uh, they, excuse me, was saying uh, that they define themselves as a uh, artist you're saying you define yourself as a visionary in your yeah. head, you know, privately, <laughs> in private moments, private moments. Um, yeah. Oh, my God. That's, yeah, that's true. Wow. I did feel so much shame telling somebody that because, you know, it feels very self-aggrandizing. But I also think, like, we have to self-aggrandize. I mean, you know. How and else I, do you get out of bed in the morning? Yeah, exactly. And also, I mean, again, I... You know, I'm a white person. I went to like a fancy high school, a fancy Catholic high school that also taught me to hate myself, but like a fancy high school. You know, I have a lot of privilege. And also at the same time, like I get yelled at on the street for, you know, and patrolled for my gender presentation. And those things are still, both those things are true at the same time. So I feel like, um, yeah, I mean, thank you for saying that. I really do feel that when I looked around to see like, where are the opportunities for me? It seems like every time I level up to the next thing, the opportunities aren't there. And so I have to do like some essentially like construction work to try to like build the <laughs> house that then I get to live in, you know? Yeah. Um, I don't own a house. But anyway, uh, but yes, that's that feels true to my life. And um, it's tiring. I'll say oh, that. God. I wish I, I wish it wasn't, you know, like this. I don't think, I don't think, um, I don't think that, there are so many people running through life and it's easy, but I will say that I am tired of always going, where's the thing where I fit? Okay, I'll build it. Like that's annoying. Yeah, the okay, I'll I'll build it. I mean, for six years, my husband and I have building have been building East Siders and I'm I'm glad that this is kind of the final chapter of it. We're saying goodbye with season four. It it's a choice to say goodbye. We're saying thank you very much. Let's end this story and let's hopefully move on to something with either a bigger budget or in a development pipeline, you know, something where I'm not literally doing what I was doing until 1 a.m. last night, which was making like graphics and uh, approving video content for our YouTube channel yeah. and giving notes to our trailer editor. Like I want to be involved in all of these processes, but I don't want to be the central hub, you know, because I'm acting as studio and network. We're distributed by Netflix. We're, we'll be available on Netflix December 1st, but we're independently produced. We fundraise through Kickstarter. We raised $140,000 to shoot the most recent season. And the end result of that is just like, I'm constantly in a war room. Mm-hmm. I'm at all times hustling. Yeah, I mean, I really relate to that. I guess that's, I think that's kind of what I'm talking about, which is like, you create your own thing and that isn't necessarily equivalent to the folks who are just kind of, um, the door is opened to them. And and like, I, I love creating my own stuff. And I also, um, you know, like I think about, this is a really bad analogy, but I was just listening to, um, a recap of I was listening to the Daily, the New York Times podcast, the Daily, and they were talking about this dinner in Iowa where all the Democratic candidates historically give a stump speech, and they were talking about how Bernie Sanders didn't bring any supporters because he doesn't take corporate money, so his supporters gathered outside as opposed to coming in because they he didn't pay for their tickets to come in, and it's like I like have so much respect for that, and I also feel like. Damn it. Do we always have to wait outside? <laughs> Do we like I just I, you know what I mean? Outside. I feel I feel both ways where I'm like, yeah. what a stand. And then I'm also like, the people inside got chairs, you know, like like what the fuck? <laughs> so just I feel like um well, I want to talk more about I think where I was actually getting to, which is so if you're the person running this show, like like you are, and you're in a situation where you're creating something like a sex scene for yourself, how do you protect yourself as an actor in that moment? That is a vulnerable position to be in. Like what, what sort of, how do you take care of yourself? Yeah. I mean, we're, I think having, um, 
all kinds of new and necessary conversations about how to go about orchestrating things like that in a way that everybody feels protected and listened to and um, heard. You know, I guess I'm repeating myself, but that uh, that it was just a lot of conversations with everybody about like here's exactly what we are and are not going to do. Um, And the show's not explicit. You know, like we shoot our our sex scenes from the waist up. You know, like, so it's, it's, yeah. it's not as though we're ever really choreographing thrusting, if that makes sense. So yeah, we that did does at, make sense. We did in season three, but it was a tight shot of our chests. So, you know, like, th- you know, the man was thrusting into the bed, you know, <laughs> like there wasn't yeah. really anything to navigate there apart from here's where I'm going to be and here's where you're going to be. And we're both going to pretend to have sex with in other, with air, basically. When was the first time you saw gay men having sex on TV? Oh, man. Um, I know the first time I really identified with a gay person on television was Danny from the real world, New Orleans. That was the first time. I'm trying to see if, if – I'm trying to remember if they were really having sex. You know what? It honestly might have been the British version of Queer as Folk. Yeah. I mean, mine's the American version of Queer as Folk. It was the first time I saw – two male characters having sex. And I, I mean, I think I've talked about this on the podcast even before, but I didn't know, like, I didn't know if you had two, I didn't know if two penises were involved that you could have sex facing each other. Like mm-hmm. that is the kind of sex ed that I got. That is the <laughs> understanding I had of gay male sexuality was like, no, it's like, Im- it's like the, the first thing I'll say is that it is impersonal. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. that's definitely the messaging that I got is like, well, why even would you face each other? It's not like you like each other. You know, yeah. it's just, Anyway, thanks Catholicism. I saw that and I was just like, "Oh, awesome! Yay!" Like, I also went to a religious uh, middle high school and middle school before Interlochen mm. in Mississippi, so I got abstinence-only education. Yes, which consisted of once a year we would go into the cafetorium and there would be a slideshow of exploding genitalia, and then somebody's mom, who was a registered nurse retired, would come out and say, "Remember, condoms aren't effective." When you say exploding gen- genitalia, do you mean like I mean genital warts that have like coming out of your butt and yes. coming to the front? Oh my I god! Mean herpes of the eye. I mean, like I, I have these vivid, visceral, visceral memories of like the some like all of us as a collective looking at wrecked genitals, and that's so wild, especially because so many STIs can be pretty asymptomatic e- for a lot yeah, of number people. Number one, asymptomatic. One. Number two, um, manageably treated and lived with. Absolutely. Like you say herpes of the eye. I mean, it's literally, I, I mean, I remember being so scared of herpes, which is like a, just a totally like livable thing. 60 to 80% we of all people have, it. Yeah. have HS, HSV1. Yes. Yeah. And then also- when my high school, we'd watched an abortion. Like, that was the equivalent of what you're talking about. And Watched an abortion? That's right. We watched a videotape of an abortion. Oh, my God. We watched a – I'll say it one more time. We watched a videotape of an abortion. You heard about it when you were freshmen. And I, I wonder if this is – when you say everybody came together, and first of all, I've never heard the word cafetorium, but <laughs> that sounds like the right place to watch yeah. these. Also – Where you eat. What I'm understanding is that that's where you eat. Yes. <laughs> ah! Um, do you remember if this was before or after lunch? I can't remember exactly what had happened, but I will tell you that a kid fainted. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to say last names, but Winston fainted. Winston. And never lived it down. I was going to say, how was that for Winston? Did he? Did this person have to be, like, dragged out of the room? Yep. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And then, like, sent to the school nurse sort of yeah, a thing? I can only assume. Oh, my God. I didn't go God. on that part of his journey. Oh, but I'm my sure it was not pleasant. God. Did, we were did friends. You watch this? I knew him. And, like, we were we were in the same kind of ragtag group of kids that would have rocks thrown at our heads during lunch. Somebody like, decided to lay rocks um, in the kind of, like, common area around the, like, place where you could get snacks and food and stuff where everybody would hang out. Really great idea. Let's have rocks. Available. Let's have gravel there. Yeah. Great. Nothing bad could possibly happen. So would you call that, were you bullied? Is that what you would? Absolutely. Me yeah. less than some other kids. But my nickname was Gay Kid for sure starting sophomore year. Wow. Because I tried to start a student-run theater. Big mistake. Wow. Wow. 
back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! When you were being called a gay kid, did you know you were a queer person? Were you like, yeah. and true? <laughs> uh, first person I came out to was my girlfriend in seventh grade, Beatrice. Wow. How'd she, how did she respond? She was rad. Yeah, it was after we broke up. And by girlfriend, I mean we uh, went and saw Home Fries and sort of held hands once. <laughs> I had that relationship. <laughs> we um, danced together at the school dance, yeah. but not too close. Oh, uh-huh. Yeah. Yes. Uh, she was rad. She was a, a great friend and ally, and we'd talk on the phone all the time in, like, hushed tones. We would watch, like, sexy queer anime together. Oh, mm-hmm. wow. Yes. I like that you um, – Held on to some folks into the rest of your life. That always, that bodes well for somebody as a human if they've been able to. If your oldest friend is like somebody that you went to high school with and still know, that bode, that that says that speaks highly. But then of you. you know, I like stopped making friends. Like I did. Yeah. Like, like, no. <laughs> <laughs> One and done. <laughs> no, I have friends. I have friends. I swear. I, if my friends are listening, oh, I love you don't you. have to have friends. I mean, just so you know, here, this is a, this is it's fine with yeah. Well, there's a level of closeness that like I that came very naturally to me, especially in boarding school because we spent all day every day together, like morning, noon, and night. Like we ate all our meals together, had our, all our classes together. How do how could you not become fused into a, a cohesive like friend thing you know and then especially coming out to LA I was like oh Jesus how do I call this a friendship if I see you once a month for coffee sort of you know yeah sure well when you were living at school what age were you when you started doing that? 16 yeah I mean that is also like I guess a special circumstance because I mean I was in I like I must have been I guess I was 17 when I moved to Boston to go to college. But even that feels that's a that one year is a big difference at that time, you know? Um I was really not ready for it either. I mean, it was into the, you know, into the deep end very very quickly. Uh cuz you know, I was trying to escape Mississippi. I was trying to escape a not awesome situation where uh my parents had read my journal and found out I was gay and oh. sent me into therapy to help with my confusion, not ex-gay therapy, not conversion therapy, but um, a softer version of that. Uh, so it, it it was like an educating process for them that the therapist actually kind of helped uh, helped them with in terms of like coming to terms with it. It's not something he's choosing. It's not, you know, like all of that sort of, those sort of conversations happened, which I was ultimately grateful for. But at the time I had this like, I'm going to run away from home and I'm going to go to New Orleans. I'm going to read tarot cards in Jackson Square and you can't stop me. <laughs> <laughs> what a specific dream. I had it planned. I, <laughs> you got to have a plan. I don't know that I've ever heard. So when, when you're talking about going to therapy, um, I don't know that I've ever heard anybody say that was my, it sounds like we might have had a sort of similar experience when you say that it was a softer conversion therapy. Can you talk to me about like, is that because you think that was your parents' intention was to send you to therapy, but the therapist was like doing actual real therapy like like where what's the where's the soft con- was it the intention was it what you were hearing from the therapist it, it it was not nobody ever said to me we're sending you to therapy to make you straight if that's the distinction that i can make but the exact phrasing was to help with your confusion yeah i i you're the i think to this date you're the only person i've ever had this conversation with where um and I sort of had a similar experience. It wasn't so it, – it was definitely not explicitly said to me that we – yeah, we hope that this changes you. But it was also not 
about my coping. And in my experience, my parents went with me, which was also very... It up- turned into that. That... Which was great, actually. I'm so glad that was good for you. For In my case, I think that we didn't really stick with it long enough. And I think because of that, I actually, I did like to help with your confusion. It did the opposite of that for me. Like it really made me confused because I didn't understand um, sort of where the therapist fell on. She was doing a lot of listening and, you know, my parents were doing a lot of talking and I was kind of just sitting there. So I think it, it really felt like almost intervention type thing, neutral space type thing for my folks to sort of get out their their grievances. Um, and it was really, it was really damaging and uncomfortable. We had opposite complete strategies of how to go into it because I was furious. Oh yeah. Furious. Cause it was a violation of my trust and my space. Like read, they read my journal. They found like went back and found out all of these things through, through all of my life. Cause I had kept journals for a long time and sometimes I would destroy them. Uh, but one I had not destroyed. Where was it that they found it? Uh, just in my room somewhere. I don't know exactly. Um, funnily enough, I was in New Orleans hanging with my sister uh, while she was at college. And I had my first kiss, I think, on the trip that they read my journal. Because wow. I was 15 and she snuck me into a gay bar on Bourbon Street. And I had my first kiss sitting on a trash can. <laughs> Yay! That does sound like Bourbon Street. Yeah. Also, this is the world's dumbest question, but I feel like... I this is literally a geography question. <laughs> how far is where you grew up from New Orleans? Three and a half hours by train. Okay, and yeah. that's how you got there. And that's how I would go. Um, but with the uh, the therapy, like, okay, so uh, I'll paint the picture. Um, I found out that they had read my journal because my mom brought me into my dad's law offices and set me on opposite sides of a conference table. Sure. And they informed me <laughs> of the fact that they were aware of the things I had been writing about in my journal and that I would be going into therapy that afternoon. Wow. Um, so I immediately threatened to leave and run away from home. I uh, had multiple like escape plans running at that point already because I kind of felt like I needed to get out of Mississippi, not because of them, but because of Mississippi. Um, and I was just like immediately like, this is, this will not pass. Like I just lost my shit and went into like a rage spiral. And I like got in there. The first thing I did when I sat down with a the therapist was I cussed him out. And the first thing I did when I sat down with the therapist and my parents was I told them to all go fuck themselves. Wow. I, that's amazing. How did that go over? What did the therapist um, have to say? I'm shocked at how tolerant they all were of my childishness because, like, I, looking back on it now, I see their intentions in a different light. Um, you know, uh, in their defense, I'll just, like, be a little confessional and say they read other things in my journals as well. Like, I've struggled with depression and anxiety since I was literally a little kid. And I had very carefully hidden that from my family. You know, like nobody in my family knew that I was cutting myself when I was 10 years old. Nobody knew that. You know, I'd, I'd done a really good job of hiding that. Uh, and it's something I'm only actually really comfortable talking about in the last year of my life. Like this is probably the first time I've actually said that to anybody where anybody would listen um, and it would be permanent. So I feel a little weird that I just did. But but whatever, you know, like I'm trying to destigmatize these kinds of things. And I think it's important um, to talk about that. But, you know, obviously that's disturbing to your mom when she reads that. And she had no idea that you had been struggling with depression and anxiety since you were a tiny kid um, that, you know, that she dedicated her life to protecting. Yeah. So I get that. I get that. But also, to be clear the gay stuff was not an easy road for for especially my mom and dad you know that was it was hard for them thank you for trusting me and being so honest that that means a lot to me that's nice of you to feel like you could say some real shit about your life i mean i think it's important that we say the real shit and that we especially on um you know a podcast like this where i feel like a lot of your listeners uh probably have gone through things like that and Absolutely. maybe don't don't know that ever 
a lot of their friends probably have too. Like we just keep that shit bottled up inside so much that, um, that it, it festers and rots inside of us. Yeah. I mean, that's, that is, this is exactly what I hear the most when I hear from listeners and, um, it's the intention behind the podcast too was really to be to have these in-group conversations where like we wouldn't be shocked at each other's trauma or um directing it to I just I feel like I've heard so many interviews where it's like wait what you know and I've also been on the receiving end of those interviews where people are like that's how your parents took it or all this other and it's like yeah this is yeah this is what it's like you know, yeah, this is, and it are, doesn't diminish my love for my parents, their love for me, totally. just to say that we had a a really rough patch when I was sixteen. You know, we came out of it on the other side, actually way closer than I think we would have been had it not happened. No, oh, that's awesome. You know, something else that I will say, I have you know respect for this kid. You said that maybe it was childish behavior, and I you know I wasn't there, but I will also say that. Something that's really nice about that story that you just told me is it's a queer person holding the line, you know? And so often I think we are taught to like apologize, make ourselves smaller and be palatable for other people. And so I also like the idea that you came in, you know, um, full of fire like that, because that really isn't usually the story. The like prototypical coming out story is so apologetic often and so shame filled and like maybe that maybe that was the motivation for this you know like fuck you i'm holding the line we don't you know i don't know but i will say it's cool to hear it you know it's cool to hear a story where somebody's that's that wasn't my experience i did not feel i felt like i felt like my i felt like everybody else was right you know i felt like i was wrong like i was like well fuck i mean i guess i have to you know, do this in secret. I guess I will not have a positive future. Like I would never have occurred to me to run away because there was nowhere else that I could imagine things being different. So I was like, I will run away to somewhere and this will be the situation there. So I guess I probably just have to, what? I don't know. Put up with it and then someday die like i don't know like <laughs> i just die. i don't know I, I relate to that too though you know because this is just like a, they caught me at a very specific time where i already you know was like well i was waiting to find out if i was going to boarding school i knew i was going to get out i was old enough uh that i felt secure in in mm. who i was but i remember when i first realized that i was gay it's a very vivid memory i was laying in bed just thinking about it and thinking about everything that would not um, happen for me in my life because this horrible thing was true. I remember thinking, okay, I'll never get married. I can't um, go to church. Um, I'll never be president. Like these are actual thoughts that I was hundred percent. I had that president thought. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't want to be president. I I, I have no political. Somehow also on my list. I, I truly was. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that just speaks to like whatever hubris exists inside of me, and I'm like, well, I don't want to be president, but if called upon, if they, uh, I guess ah. if you need me. <laughs> That's so funny. Well. You are married. You're a married person. Yeah, I am married. And we have, I don't know, uh, you know, we have like a, a, a real viable Democratic nominee uh, candidate for presidency that's an openly gay man, you know. And, and the world's changed so incredibly rapidly in the last mm-hmm. 10 years. It's just a, I, I find it breathtaking. It's a wonder to behold. And part of it is that you and I are sitting across from each other talking so openly about things like this and um, finding an audience. Yeah, I I totally I totally agree. I was I can't remember if I've said this on this show, so sorry if I'm repeating myself, but I was in New Hampshire and went to like a small town parade and Pete Buttigieg's husband Chaston Chaston was there marching in the parade and we like locked eyes across the parade route. Like literally he was like on the other side of this crowd of people and I just I I must have looked like the aura of queerness around me was like so like i i would i looked at him like with this with this in my soul come over here and shake my hand and he turned around like as if spoken to (laughs) and went like is anyone here gay and i could see him just (laughs) notice he literally like 
ran across <laughs> and we shook hands and it was and then he like we followed each other and he like dm'd me later it was very cute and funny but definitely not like that he knew me from anything but more so just that he was that we were both like gay like ah. giving like gay lasers at each other um i i can't believe that i watched i can't believe that i saw a presidential candidate's husband like it's one thing i don't know i can't decide which thing feels more wild to me like the idea that there is a candidate using the word husband or the fact that then the husband then materializes and is like, I am the husband, you know, because yeah, I'm not going to hide in the shadows. Political wives have for so long done so much work. And it is like just wild to see, first of all, a man fulfill that role. Obviously, there are other men who are married to female politicians, but it's like still so fucking rare. And then two gay men. I just like, I like can't believe it. It's wild. Because in a way, it's it's a triumph for gay men, and it's also a triumph uh, against the patriarchy mm -hmm. in a cool way, too, because it's challenging gender roles and gender mm -hmm. norms to say, and the first husband, you know, like, it's that's cool. It's a whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, does it do, does it affect you seeing them together? Like, what, like what is your, your feeling? You know, I'll, I'll be completely, totally honest. I'm simultaneously... Um, inspired by it terrified of it because you know the I, i'm from mississippi and i think oh god oh god what's gonna happen what's gonna happen you know like i i'm filled with fear when i see something break through like that but that that fear is something to lean into you know what do you mean tell me more oh, about well, that just like let's imagine a scenario where he gets the nomination and then goes down in flames because yeah. this country is every bit as awful in parts as we think it is Right. You know, like it, it, but you can't live your life that way, and you can't uh, look at the world that way. That's fear speaking, you know, because otherwise we'll maintain the status quo forever. Otherwise, we'll only have male presidential candidates. Right. We will only have straight, white, male, cisgender presidential candidates because anything else is dangerous, you know. And that's what's so interesting about looking at politics right now, looking at the Democratic primary and being like, oh, my God, there's so much opportunity for uh, so many of these different candidates to break down walls, Yes, I agree. I mean, I have to say, just you and I, like, here together right now, I don't – I agree that it is um, – I don't know. He's – this person has not demonstrated anything to me yet. I don't know. You know, politicians are politicians. That makes me think he's, like, a bad person who would deserve uh, humiliation and hounding and um, – anything else that could literally anything else that could happen to him and yeah it is scary to look at him and think like oh man like <sighs> well and that's, that would be i mean that would be off a debate between those two people between this our stupid fucking know, president you know what would happen i mean it would like, be awful let's, to let's watch be real yeah well, i remember yeah. i remember what he did i remember him standing behind and menace Menacing. after after we already knew who he was mm -hmm. As somebody who is like, no, like I straight up assault women. Like that's my whole thing. And then just standing behind her and menacing to, sh to show us. Like, yes, that's who I am. I think it's fine actually. And here's what it would look like. You know, like I just, it was, that was very stark to me. So I, you know, obviously I don't think that person holds any esteem for other people. And I, I think he would do whatever he needed to do. And it would be tough to watch. Yeah, but I, I do think that a lot of the candidates that we're seeing have, have kind of demonstrated themselves as fearless people. Oh, that's true. Yeah. And that's that's really rad to watch. Yeah, it is. You've talked a lot sort of, I guess, around Mississippi. And I, I wonder, so what is your relationship like with home now? You know, it is a place that I go to see family. Or maybe I'll say it differently, where you grew up. Yeah. Because it doesn't have to be home. Yeah, and you know, like my mom does not live in the home that I grew up in anymore, and you know, so I, I go back and I'm I'm seeing people, not a place as much, um, and that's something I kind of like maintain about the South. I feel like it's really misunderstood uh, because while the deck is stacked against uh, the people who I relate to and who I identify with down South, um, there are a lot of them. 
and it's something that gets so lost in the national conversation. It's like, let's just do it in terms of politics for a second. If uh, the Democrats get 40% of the vote in a Southern state versus 51% in a swing state, we're talking about 11% of the voting populace. That's a very small percentage of the people that you interact with on your day-to-day basis. Okay, so one in 10 is against you rather than for you if we're going in in you know those sort of terms which is hard not to when you're a queer person because oftentimes people are voting based on our rights in the south you know or based on uh, abortion rights or based you know reproductive health or you know like they're, they're voting based on these issues in places like mississippi particularly mississippi where there is one abortion clinic yeah i mean Right. I Because I've had the opportunity to travel so much of this country with my job, I will say that is what I always say to folks. And I, so also usually what I say on stage when I'm there is like, I know you're here, you know, because anybody that would come see me is like, they, there's somebody that, you know, you and I would hang with or whatever. That's not necessarily true. Sometimes I play clubs and it's just a random smattering. <laughs> um but, um, do you ever get like a full basket of deplorables? Oh yeah, definitely. Yes. But you know, when that happens, I usually try to talk to those people and I know this is, I, it may, if I see specifically men that are looking at me in a certain way from the audience, it can feel scary sometimes. Like I've actually had dudes charge at me once on stage and once in like a line meeting people. And so I've had this experience. I know it's possible. And if a person looks like they're making what I, what I can see is happening mentally is that a guy is like, I don't like this. I, she like, shouldn't be talking. It should be me. Like I can just feel that that's what's happening. And, um, so I usually try to talk to that person because I know that what they want is to feel some attention. And, you know, do I want to like share this moment with them? No, but I'm good enough at my job that I can give them attention and then very quickly take it back. And I can also kind of top them in that conversation and still make them feel good. And what those guys really need is to be top. Exactly. Um, It's also like from a safety perspective, I feel like I get freaked out. Like I will be focused on this unless I do this thing. So like I have to kind of like go there, what's up with you? And then we have some conversation and the whole audience like laughs and is on board with it. And then there'll be like something that came out of that conversation that then I use later in the show. And it makes us, it makes everybody feel like we all have experienced something together. Oh, that was really light and fun, but it's honestly like, I'm trying to see if there might be some potential violence that's going to happen that I need to like address right now. Mm. And it is, that's the, that's the truth. But, um, yeah, happens all the time. Um, and I will say to me, what seems like the biggest difference and is that the faith, the connection, because there are so many places in the South where um, there is less ac- economic opportunity than say like, because there are large rural areas. This is also true anywhere there are large rural areas. Um, the The importance of the church and faith becomes really important because if you don't have a lot of stuff, sometimes you need a lot of God. Um, and so I feel like that is what makes this South so strange for me in my, in my experience as a queer person. Everything was through the lens of Christianity yes. when I was growing up. And it wasn't just because I went to an, a parochial Episcopalian school, you know, I'm, it was raised in the Methodist church, which as far as Southern churches goes is on the the softer side. Right, 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 right. Um, you know, I wasn't raised Baptist. I wasn't raised fundamentalists, you know, like I, I kind of got off a little bit easy, but I still remember sermons from uh, Christ United Methodist Church, which is a franchised church. So you'd think that it would be a little softer than this. I remember sermons as a kid where um, it would rail, the, the pastor would rail against, um, rage against the idea of being friends with people of other religions. Yes. It's like, you've got to be careful and obviously treat them with love, but be careful. And at that time, like one of, one of my best friends um, was Hindu. And I remember like sitting there as like an eight-year-old being like, the fuck? <laughs> and like to my mom's credit, like I had a conversation with her afterwards and she was like, yes, the fuck. 
don't listen to everything that the pastor says. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And soon enough, we left that church because I'll never forget, it was my sister's confirmation, which is when you like join the church at like 12 years old. And they trot you out on stage in your little, you know, Sunday finest. And I will never forget that the sermon was about girls and their hot pink mini skirts luring men into sin. And you need to watch out for women. And he segued into a screed against single working mothers. And my, my mom is an attorney who was, you know, like, raising me and my sister because uh, she and my dad were separated and just be like, oh, we got to go. <laughs> wow. I mean, not that I didn't hear that exact same. I heard that exact same message, but just the specificity of the miniskirt is what the made me happy. That it was ones. hot pink. It was hot pink. <laughs> that is like, that is, oh, yeah. I mean, the, so when you were when you were listening to this, did you like that like just say just that one, just that sermon? Were you thinking to yourself like yes or no? Like, I was thinking no. I was thinking no my whole life, and that was always uh, the curse. Is that there was not a point when I was really thinking yes, except about sex stuff. I like had somehow convinced myself because obviously that was my great, you know, Achilles heel there is that I knew that I was broken and wrong sexually from the moment I knew I was anything sexually. Um, so, you know, just we'll, we'll get into some TMI, but just because I read that uh, Tennessee Williams did something similar, like I refused to masturbate as a child. Wow. Because I was like, sex is dirty and wrong. I'll go to hell if I ever touch myself. And so for a shockingly long time post-puberty, I didn't. And I, I i mean, I was a virgin until I was 22. I lost my virginity to my husband. Hi. Hi, John. Hi. Um, but, you know, like I was very like rigid about those things and puritanical about those things, despite being like very clear about other things. Like I was very clear that racism was wrong as a child. I was raised that way. So I I have to give some credit where credit's due. I was also very clear that sexism was wrong. I was very clear that you shouldn't be bigoted against people of other faiths. And I knew that there were things that the pastor was saying that were wrong and I was against them. Yes. But when it came to anything sex related, I was like, I'm wrong. Like what you were saying earlier. I don't think that's, first of all, just so you know, I don't think that's weird at all. I also um, did not after did not ever masturbate when I was a young person. And part of that is also that I didn't know there was any reason to do that if you had the genitalia that I have. <laughs> I didn't know that there was um, anything to be achieved or any goal to set out for. Hell, so All that's going to happen is pain. That's yeah, it. Exa- pain exactly. Pain suffering. That's exactly. all that could possibly come of this. I mean, you might get yourself pregnant. That's the only <laughs> outcome. Like, I just, yeah. So um, I had no idea that there would be any positive result. And so why would you? Why even try? You know, why even try? I was certain hell would await. It was like the, the floor would open up and yeah. I would just fall into hell. I totally get that. You know what is very – here's what I'll say. I feel extremely lucky um, to be queer because what I know for a fact is that that, what we're talking about now, made perfect sense to me. And then I had this monumentally brain-reorganizing experience of realizing I was queer. And so, therefore, like this thing had to be – like, oh, maybe the things that I learned growing up about my body and about the way the world works aren't all accurate since I had to go through this whole thing that taught me that, like, actually, this might not be totally evil since it seems like fun and fine. And I feel really grateful for that. I look at the people who were raised around me, even my siblings, and I think, like, they had to do some of that reorganizing without this like big guiding thing. And, you know, I'm sure a lot of people didn't do that reorganizing because they didn't have to like have a huge heart opening moment. When you look at the repression that exists in our society, I I think that there's um, perhaps not a more repressed group than heterosexuals. Yes. (laughs) And here is the part of the show where we will say, I truly feel for heterosexuals. (laughs) I hope that you have 
some positive experiences in your life and yeah i'm not saying oppress i'm saying repress right oh no you know, like i know i'm i'm actually yeah. so serious though i really yeah. mean what i just said sometimes i see a straight woman and she's with a guy this is this is me a hundred percent reading into everything around me something that's not happening sometimes i'll see a woman this usually happens on public transportation or like on a plane and i'll see a woman she has a boyfriend that's leaning all over her like you know the guy i'm talking about he's yeah. behind her on the train he's leaning all over her they're on an airplane he's laying all in her lap i see her with that woman i make eye contact with her i go with just my eyes like i'm speaking to Jackson Buttigieg, I think they say, do you need help? Do you need to get out of here? Do you need help? Blink tell me, twice. Tell me, let me know. Do you not want to be hugged? Because this, this seems like you're, you might, I don't even know. I feel as if, so yeah, I've, I, this is all very real. Oh, I've loved this conversation. And guess what? It's time for me to ask you to shout out a queero. You know, in the spirit of this conversation, and because I uh, name-checked him earlier, I'm going to say Tennessee Williams, mm -hmm. you know, son of the South. Um, he has a connection to New Orleans, um, and he is largely the reason that, along with Edward Albee, that I started writing plays. Oh, that's awesome. And weirdly, I have no idea why this is true, but the last thing that I was looking up before coming here to record this podcast was the full plot of A Streetcar Named Desire. I don't oh, know yeah. why that's the last thing I was looking at, but anyway. I was just like, I need a refresher on I this. I was just like, can somebody <laughs> please let me know? Speaking of like awful relationships between heterosexuals. Good Christ. Oh my gosh. Not no. great. No, not great. Let it be a warning. Yes. <laughs> if you fall into the heterosexual <laughs> lifestyle, this may befall you. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, this was so fun. Yeah. This was such a blast. Thanks for having me.